Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Terrell Couch. And I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about education. Welcome back to Dangerously Likely. Uh, we want to start off this episode by welcoming um, a friend that we have here today, our guest on the pod, Rudy Kummel. Rudy, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, Rudy is a uh, 10th through 12th grade choir teacher here in Boise, Idaho. Um, he's originally from Wisconsin and graduated from Drake University. Um, today, we're going to be talking about education in our main segment, um, and we wanted to bring on a special guest who could give us a very specific and unique perspective about um, education as a teacher. So, Rudy, thank you for being here today. Um, we you know, welcome your opinion when we get into Above the Fold as well, but we're really looking forward uh, to the robust conversation around um, education that we're going to have in our main segment today. So thanks for being here. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law last week that strips Disney's special district status that it has had for its theme park, Walt Disney World. That special district Disney enjoyed was instituted by the state back in the 1960s and allows Disney to run their district without going through the process of building up infrastructure and using utilities like water that they would have to do if they operated within a county or city. They like have all their own building codes and whatnot. Since the Disney's district currently has about $1 billion in municipal bonds outstanding, there have been many questions about those who would be on the hook for paying those off. While we don't know yet who will pay for those, the most obvious option would be that the counties the special district was originally in would have to pay for them, which could, in theory for now, raise taxes on the rural population that lives around the theme park. This reaction from the Florida state government to punish Disney came after Disney put out a statement criticizing the don't say gay bill that was recently signed into Florida law. The don't say gay bill severely limits schools from mentioning anything about sexual orientation without opening them up to lawsuit. It's worth noting that Disney only commented on the bill after it was passed due to the pressure from its own employees. Terrell Torrance, what do you make with all of this? Torrance, let's start with you. Well, it's asinine, of course. Um, I think you guys know um, from my comments previously about the Don't Say Gay bill, of course, that was um, a ridiculous bill in the first place. But now this very um, retaliatory governance that they have in Florida with this specific measure to that, that, that is, for all intents and purposes, unhelpful to the, the state of Florida in general, because this is something that I was I was kind of watching over the weekend, that this it's unclear who will be saddled with this $1 billion expense, which could potentially be Florida taxpayers from a uh, from a party that that, you know, that's entire identity is around lowering taxes, uh, lowering taxes for people. And I just think that another thing that, that I think is something that is not being talked about with this is that even in the case that now we have to use um, Florida state or county municipal um, resources for Disney world. Like how does that even logistically work? Does anyone who's been to Disney world understands the standard and quality of their facilities, of their resources um, that go above and beyond what you find generally um, in public from, from cities and counties and states. Um, so I, I'm not even understanding how they will implement this change not to mention the possible expense of a billion dollars that could land on the backs of taxpayers in Florida. Absolutely. Before I take up too much space, I want to kick it to Rudy if you have any opinions. Oh, um, I mean, I think generally the thing that's funny about it is, you know, Republicans sit here and talk and talk and talk about, um, you know, the right to free speech and a person's right to free speech, but are now using like their governmental power to retaliate against a corporation for using their speech. And, you know, that's what Citizens United was all about was, 
corporations have a right to free speech too. So I just think that'll be an interesting little thing to watch as it makes its way through life. Yeah, I would echo that point and just the the immense ramifications we're seeing from an untethered culture war that has been occurring since what 2016. Um, there are some real implications that I think you highlighted incredibly well, Torrance, of the impact this will have on Floridians as they prepare for midterms and they prepare to think about who will represent them on a national level, who will represent them in their state. And this inability for the conservative party to care about its people officially and only care about these broad highlight or headlines um, is concerning. They, I recently tweeted actually that the Republican party is nothing more than a false flag operation that is targeted to ruin democracy globally. And these type of actions show it. Uh, Rudy highlighted an amazing point um, with Citizens United and the implications of free speech. Um, I'm hopeful and excited that we at Dangerous Likely will talk a little bit more about Idaho state politics because a lot of what's happening right now is rooted in these narratives that um, talking about sexuality, talking about diversity is somehow child pornography or inappropriate for children to speak on. And we are on a very dangerous path that can do immense harm without any seeming protections or supports for the people. Yeah, I I mean, it just goes to show that um, culture wars, Republicans feel like is a winning issue for them. And it doesn't matter if it might raise taxes on people. Um, I think that is actually a pretty good message to run on for Democrats in that state. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. It's kind of odd seeing the Republican Party um, retaliate against Disney for putting out a statement about it. Like we all could have just moved on and everything would have been fine. So I agree with Rudy. It's going to be really interesting to um, see what happens down the line. I, I wanted to add one like final thing to that, that I was having a conversation with my mom about this. And it's one of, it's another one of those examples of something that I think is kind of happening more increasingly as of late is like where either on the left or the right, you go so far in that direction that you end up on the other side, right? Like we've got this right-wing culture war that has resulted in a Republican state legislature. Expanding government. Yes. Like in, in a way that is, is so antithetical to their entire identity and ideology that, you know, like they, they are now incre increasing taxes on a large corporation um that is incredibly wealthy and taking away privileges that who knows if that was ever the right you know call in the first place anyway but giving all of this power to corporations as the republican party largely does it's just interesting to see them kind of go in the opposite direction as the result of or like in retaliation because of a culture war it's i was thinking also in context of that is like how do we how do we as a democratic party going into the midterms push back against these really almost whack-a-mole kind of issues on the on the right because it's not like they don't have this ideology that we can kind of push back against anymore that it's so random and so incomprehensible like there's there's no consistent ideology for us to to have a consistent message against that it makes it very difficult i think to to kind of whack every mold down in a, in, a, in a way that's going to be effective for us to uh win the midterms in the fall it's i think it's a very difficult issue but it's also i think speaks to what you said Terrell, that it's a it, it's the decaying of democracy 
In a surprise outcome after Twitter shareholders last week took what is referred to in business as a quote-unquote poison pill that allowed them to split shares and purchase more in an effort to block Elon Musk from acquiring a critical share of stock in the company, allowing him to have a larger say in company decision-making. Despite those efforts, Musk has prevailed in, in his effort to acquire the social media platform, finalizing a deal on Tuesday to buy Twitter for $44 billion after making a take-it-or-leave-it deal to the company's shareholders last week, calling it his quote, best and final offer. Musk has openly discussed some of the changes he envisions after taking the company private, saying, quote, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated, Musk said in a statement included in the press release announcing the $44 billion deal. He continued saying, quote, I also want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust defeating the spam bots, and authenticating all humans. Twitter has tremendous potential. I look forward to working with the company and the community of users to unlock it, end quote. Based on Elon Musk's behavior on Twitter and comments of the past, his new comments regarding potential changes for the platform have many wondering what free speech and content moderation guidelines will look like on an Elon Musk Twitter platform. What are your thoughts on Elon Musk taking Twitter private and the potential impact that will have on one of the world's most recognizable social media platforms? Um, Rudy, I know we talked a little bit off air, so I'll go ahead and, and shoot this to you first. Um, well, I'm like terminally online and I like exist, frankly, more on Twitter than I do in the real world. So this like, affects me quite personally and deeply. Um, I think Elon Musk is such a dork. And I think like, you know, it, it's funny we talk about free speech with him. But he's proven to be such a bully. Um, and, and really, I think there was an account on Twitter um, a couple of years ago that was, it was called Italian Elon Musk. And it was just like an account with a picture of Elon Musk and like a little Italian looking mustache. And I think he had like a little hat on or something. I don't know. Um, it still exists. It, it does? That. No, it got shut down. No, it still exists. Well, he, well, then maybe he didn't shut yeah, it down. But he had a whole stuff. fit about it and was trying to get Twitter to shut it down for defamation and for libel or slander, or whichever one it is, I don't know, and, and, and all of that. And I think it's very funny that that's the free speech advocate um, who's taking this over. Um, and I can't wait until he decides to rename himself the founder of Twitter, like he did with Tesla. So those are my rants on uh, on Elon. Well, he, and, and to that point, you know, he did just like say, I, and I don't want to, not verbatim, but it, it's almost specifically that he wants when he's talking about free speech, he wants Twitter to be a platform where even his biggest critics have a a platform to speak. And it's like yeah. that, exa <laughs> that example that you just gave obviously flies, you know, right in the face of, of his comments. And then I'm also, I have the news on where I'm, where I'm recording. So I also caught that he made a comment saying that what he means by free speech is what's consistent with the law. And that he doesn't like when platforms take their um, content moderation and guidelines beyond what the law calls discrimination, et cetera. Which like, just feels, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, what is it? Section 230. Is that what it was written in the nineties about, yep. yeah. about tech regulations? I don't know. We're just like dealing with the repercussions of that, I guess, which yeah. is so frustrating. Yeah. 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 I, I, to answer your question, Torrance, I don't know. Um, there's a world, there's several timelines we can go down here. <laughs> One timeline is Musk takes it over, introduces some new features, doesn't mess with anything with the free speech. Uh, another timeline is he does, and it's weird and wacky, and a lot of people leave Twitter, and the and the company um, sees a lot of people leave the company and stuff. I, I don't know. Musk, say what you will about the man. I don't know if he should have billions of dollars or not, but he was able to get it. I don't think he would put $40 billion of his own money into Twitter without thinking that it's a sound business decision. 
and I might be completely wrong by that. Um, so I guess we'll just see what happens. I don't know if it, if Twitter's going to actually get worse. I'm uh, slightly curious about the features he might introduce, but his rhetoric about free speech is all over the place. And I don't know what that's actually going to mean in practice. And he probably won't actually have control for like a few months. So we just will have to wait and see, I guess. I'm going to be honest. I don't care. <laughs> like I genuinely do not care. I don't care that Elon Musk How? took over Twitter. I don't care about all of the back and forth that we're seeing about it. I just, I'm so over us as a people having to react immediately to things rather than processing it or letting it happen and see what comes out of it. And I just don't care. Um, It's frustrating. And I think the piece that the Democratic Party is missing out on here is we just saw the richest man in this country exploit tax laws in front of our face so he doesn't have to pay taxes next term or the the next cycle. Um, That's why he pulled stocks out of Tesla. That's why he moved things around um, to ensure that he doesn't have to pay taxes. That's the piece that really angers me and frustrates me. But the whole back and forth and people deleting their accounts on Twitter, I just don't care. I don't think leaving Twitter is actually going to solve anything. Sorry, guys. No, I don't think that's the reaction. (laughs) No, it's still still going to be Twitter. Yeah. Like all the news people and journals will still be on there. Well, that's, that's one of the points that I wanted to bring up because that's, what's been being discussed. I think is that statistically like with, with some data here, when we're talking about social media platforms, Twitter has less daily users than Facebook, than Instagram, than Snapchat, than TikTok. It's not, it's daily users is not how it's making money. Um, but what Twitter has that is much different than a lot of than the other platforms is that it is picked up on news a lot more. It's used by celebrities and um, elected officials in a higher volume and with more traffic and more content that they're putting out than, than other platforms that, that they use. And that it is globally understood to be a place where very official, where quote unquote official comments are made or put out um, by people. And I think that there's power and value in that. I mean, honestly, I think that that's where the value of Twitter comes from. Um, because it doesn't make a lot of sense, I think, in context of, of daily users when we're talking about a social media platform where you would think that that would be the the key indicator um, of the value of, of, of the platform. Um, whereas I think that it's a little bit more it's a little bit more unique in terms of Twitter in, in comparison to other platforms. Yeah, I mean, like you said, a lot of journalists on there and stuff, it certainly has clout in somehow uh, in like our political circles and stuff in the country and how things are thought about and whatnot, which I don't know if it deserves it, but it does. I will say one thing is Twitter doesn't necessarily make their money from user base, but they barely make a profit anyways. It's all through advertisements. And one thing I would just push back on there is, yes, the reason Twitter entered into the space and has the level and degree of significance that it has is because um, we as a people took to it. I, I think if I'm being frank, uh, media's willingness to allow Donald Trump to be a Twitter president gave Twitter a lot more clout because before that, a lot of people had kind of forgotten about Twitter. It had become the space where you would go on and vent your emotions and move on. And it was a, a happy-go-lucky space, but we allowed for happy-go-lucky is a stretch yet. Yeah. Um, but we allow for this platform to become this thing because 
we didn't hold the president of the United States accountable to press conferences. We didn't hold him accountable to his spoken words. We allowed for him to tweet at 2 a.m. whatever he wanted and then post it all over the news and let it take up air. If people are genuinely upset and frustrated about where Twitter might move, we have the power to take that away. And I know some of our listeners get very frustrated um, that I put a lot of accountability on people, but that is one of the reasons I get so frustrated in this space is because we are the ones who have allowed and created those things to happen. We are the ones who allowed for Twitter to become the space. The reason, <clears throat> the reason Joe Biden's poll numbers are rather low in my personal opinion is because he's a normal president. He's not tweeting every day and he's not taking over the cycle. And I think that's effective and that's why I care about it. So that's why I, I say very um, anticlimactically that I don't care about the Elon Musk takeover because if he does move it into a platform that I don't feel comfortable with, just like I stopped using Facebook because everyone and their mother were on there tweeting how happy they were Donald Trump was president and I took a break out of solidarity of I as a person should not have to be traumatized that way. We as a people can do the same thing and we can make Twitter the equivalent of truth social, whatever the hell Donald Trump's social media platform is supposed to be where it is just a relegated piece. And who knows, maybe Reddit gets the best turnover it's ever had in history. Like that's, that's why I don't care. I want to, and if you don't mind, I want to go ahead and take the opportunity because you mentioned something about it, Terrell, um, in your comments that, you know, has been on my mind, I think for the past several weeks um, that, you know, I think that we have a lot of conversations and we often are about like, well, well, what can the, what can the, you know, the voter do when it comes to organizing, to voting, um, to removing themselves from a platform that they seem to deem um, irresponsible, um, that it's not that we miss the mark on holding systems and institutions accountable for their corruption and for their wrongdoing. Of course, we hold that opinion. Of course, we wish that there was more that we could individually do to change that. And of course, we share the opinion that our lawmakers should be regulating in a much more, I think, aggressive way um, because a lot of the a lot of the actions of these companies, of these social media platforms are decaying our democracy as well as the actions of, of other people in, in, the, in the opposing political party. But we say these things and we do, like Terrell said, put I think a lot of responsibility on our listeners, on the individual, because that's what we can do. That's the that's the, the the power we do have is what can you do as an individual? You can remove yourself from platforms. You can not buy things. You can not support things. That's the action that we that we can give to our listeners and to our fellow Americans. And 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 I wish that there was more that we could do, and we will do our best to try to educate to push more systemic change. But I think that it's very important for us to like to to be very clear that we're not missing that, but we're trying to tell you and give you actionable information, not things that we don't think that we could actually achieve. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Terrell, because it's something I've been meaning to say for weeks. Let's check out the international poll. On Monday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov reminded the world the depth in which the Ukraine conflict could spark the greatest tragedies humanity has ever seen. In an in-depth interview with Russian TV, Lavrov reaffirmed the threat of nuclear conflict um, should not be underestimated. While accusing NATO of pouring oil on the fire, by providing weapons. This comes as the United States looks to reopen their embassies in Kiev. Um, additionally, this earlier today, Russia announced that it was cutting its oil supply to Poland, which is one of the starkest and um, most aggressive actions it has taken to the um, Western world. In a covert trip to Ukraine, top diplomats 
um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin promise for promise more military aid to the tune of $73 million for Ukraine and countries in the region. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to keep you updated um, as these horrendous conflicts developed. But as we enter month two, are there any comments for Caleb Torrance and you, Rudy? It's, I'm, I, I mean, I, I struggle, I, I'm continuing to struggle to find words because I think that obviously our opinion remains the same at this point. Um, I, I think that we're all kind of struggling to put into words how we're feeling because we re- I think we recognize that Russia is not, there's not a lot of rationale to what they're doing. Obviously, it's completely wrong. There's the entire morality and ethical piece to this to this invasion of Ukraine. But at the end of the day, like, how do you, how do you respond to a regime that seems to not have any specific plan nor ideology nor moral compass that's guiding them that it's simply just kind of mania and i don't know how to respond to that i don't know what else to add other than putin's fucking insane and this is a terrible fucking tragedy um that the world is going to have to live with in some changed state from here on out i i will i will say this part i I, we you know we just approved another couple billion dollars right and in military and economic aid to ukraine and i think that i know that we have people especially on the far left too that that have this criticism that we are um you know sending this amount of money to aid ukraine when like we aren't funding our you know like we'll get into the conversation we're not funding our schools we're not funding you know food programs we're not funding you know houselessness um you know people without homes like that we just send these billions of dollars overseas and it's like at the end of the day i understand that that criticism but also like what do we do Right? Do, do we just look evil in the face and do nothing about it when we have the capacity to do so? It's very difficult. And I just, I, I, again, I'm trying to do better, I think, on the podcast of us bringing up the things that we know are on our minds that we don't have the power to do anything about. But like, what do we do? It's not necessarily a good and bad decision. You are stuck between a rock and a hard place. You have to do no harm, but you also have to help. Yeah. Taking a trip around the globe. French President Emmanuel Macron secures his second term over far-right candidate Le Pen, and the Tarji forces announced that they are leaving the Afar region, um, hopefully allowing for much-needed humanitarian aid in the region following a months-long conflict that has resulted in famine. And we'll be right back. And we're back. Prior to the pandemic, the United States underfunded public education by $125 million. The federal role in the U.S. public schools remained small, on average, typically around 10% of the total revenue for elementary and secondary school systems. As you may suspect, this caused major equity concerns across the country. The national average per student Um, expenditure in 2019 to 2020 based on fall enrollment was roughly 13,597, a gain of 4% from 13,078 in 2018 to 2019. 
The Education Trust estimates school districts with high populations of Black, Latino, and American Native students receive 13% less than districts with fewer students from these populations. Adding a historic teacher shortage with unprecedented challenges in learning for our K through 12 system. Um, and one may assume that state governments and localities would take this as an opportunity to make critical investments in our children. Public school enrollment, just as a reminder, is expected to decrease by an estimated 2.4% this year. Instead, we are seeing quite the opposite from states like Idaho, Florida, Indiana, and so many more. Classrooms are being limited in their discourse on gender identity, sexual orientation, while conservatives continue to decree educators are promoting critical race theory as a rationale to ban math books in Florida specifically. Now, normally, I would tread lightly um, to try to protect the bipartisan integrity of this show, but as an African-American, the clear dog whistles coming from the right are a glaring sign that education is under attack in America, carrying the banner of parent choice and anti-child sexualization or anti-wokeness. I mean, Senator Rick Scott hides none of this in his 11-point plan to quote-unquote rescue America. While our children become pawns in this untethered culture war, um, I will try not to abuse our lead conversation by going on a rant and making this my tangent, but I do want to open the floor and have a really robust conversation with Rudy about teaching in America right now and really truly the impact that this is having on our students. Rudy, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit more? Yeah, um, so uh, I, my name is Rudy. Um, I got my degree in music education in Des Moines, um, <clears throat> taught for three years in Iowa. Um, taught for taught English for one year um, in Estonia, and then I moved here. Um, so this is my first year living in Idaho. Um, if there are any teachers around the country listening right now, um, I would not recommend moving here to be a teacher, just to be blunt about that. Um, you know, it kind of fucking sucks to be a teacher everywhere. Pardon me. It sucks to be a teacher everywhere. You can swear. But, oh, <laughs> good. Then I'll swear. It fucking sucks to be a teacher everywhere, but it fucking, fucking sucks to be a teacher in Idaho. So... Um, Read an E for everyone, for sure. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the one of the frustrating things is um, there's just not opportunities for growth as a teacher. Um, you know, teachers really do want to prepare and be better for their students, and most of us want to go get extra education, but that costs money, and you know, it's it's really hard to afford grad school on my forty thousand dollar a year salary as a fourth year teacher in the largest city in the state. Um, hey, but you have state-sponsored health care. Oh, yeah. I have great health care that I pay, like, still too much money for. And, you know, all, I mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Being a teacher rules. I love it. I love every minute of my day. I love the students. I love the content that I teach. I love my building. Um, you know, like, I love all of the intangible stuff. But, it, God, it's really hard to live as a 27-year-old, on, you know, on, on, in, in that lifestyle where you have to be at school all the time and you don't get the societal respect. And on top of that, like your earning potential maxes out at 70, $75,000. I mean, that's just really not that much. So I don't know. That's my general thought on that. But yeah. I'm sure. I I, well, more. No, I think that was a, a great intro. I wanted to ask specifically um, before we get into some of our questions, um, 
with kind of everything that you know Terrell mentioned in the intro, are there anything? Are there any of like those bills or funding changes that have specifically have been affecting you at your school or, or in Boise um, specifically? So, like I said, I just moved here. Um, it's been kind of a lot to get my head on straight. Um, so I don't know that I'm willing able to comment on how these bills have affected anything specific this year for me. Um, I do, I, I am, you know, constantly aware of the whole, like, don't say gay bill or um, critical race theory stuff. Cause you know, with, with music education, um, I very much believe our job is to expose students to different ideas and, and different cultural, you know, different cultures through music. <clears throat> and if you're going to do a piece that, you know, comes from, you know, the, the spiritual tradition of enslaved African-Americans, then you need to talk about that. And if you talk yeah, about that, yeah, then like, absolutely. bam, it's critical race theory. You know, if you want to do songs that reference the labor movement, because there's a lot of labor, um, a lot of like folk songs that reference labor movements. Well, then you got to talk about labor movements in the 1920s. And then, you know, the U.S. government's always the bad guy in those. So, um that's how it affects me. Uh, I haven't noticed anything specific yet. Um, but I'm also in the arts, which are different. I'm not being attacked necessarily in the way that like the general teachers are. So that's a little difference there too. Well, I think that no, I, I thought that you touched on something that is that I kind of had in my mind when you were talking about being a choir teacher, because, because as a young gay student who was in the closet like the choir show choir the theater was my safe haven to kind of more expressively be myself um and if i felt like that there was this very specific um mandate for that to not be a free and open environment um that that could have been de detrimental to my to my experience in public schools um i would argue that my experience in in those spaces kept me above water through, you know, a very concert in a very conservative um, town and in a very conservative, you know, public school environment. And so that is something that I was kind of keenly thinking about. And I was wondering how you are trying to navigate that, how you've thought about what, like what things you would say if this has comes up in class in the classroom, has it come up in the classroom? Um, I guess before I get into all this, I do just want to say, I think, um, in this area, there are a lot of really phenomenal music teachers and teachers in general who I think are doing a lot of work like what I'm doing um, and beyond what I'm doing. So just to kind of put that out, I think there are a lot of really phenomenal teachers dealing with this. Um, but I guess how, how I deal with it in the classroom, I kind of just pretend it's not happening, um, which is not the smartest thing. Uh, and I just, you know, go about my day. Um, Every day, for example, I start um, I start class with like a this day in history thing. Um, and so last week, I believe it was Friday, was the first of the sip-ins in um, New York City to, you know, protest um, anti-LGBT discrimination laws in the 1960s and 70s. So we talked about that in class. We talked about, you know, what, and that's obviously very much not in my lane as a music teacher. Um, but that's something, you know, the kids wanted to know about, you know, and, and, and so we talked about that. We talked, we've talked about... I mean, you know, any important historical event that comes up is, is something that kind of gets talked about with the students. When Ukraine, when the Ukrainian invasion started, they all wanted to talk about that. They wanted to, you know, ask questions and and, and share their own opinions. And, and you have to give them space for that. I do think that brings in a good piece, though, right, of we're seeing this hyper-politicalization 
of our education system. And for those teachers that are in those spaces and don't know if they can advocate or speak the ways you do, like, is there any words of advice that you would give for teachers that are listening? Are there any things that, again, owning the fact that I'm putting a lot of pressure on the people, sure, but are there spaces and places where you come to realize your voice has been more powerful than people are giving it credit for? I'm going to answer the first question first because I don't know how to answer the second one. And so maybe I'll think of an answer. Um, (laughs) One of the most important things that I I learned in my teacher education um, process was, you know, we don't teach music, we teach kids. Um, And so I think if you're a teacher that's, you know, struggling to have those conversations, I mean, they're not students, they're people, you know? And so if we can treat our students like actual people, um, it becomes much easier to let them speak and have those spaces. Um, you don't have to bring things up and it's pretty easy to stop things. You know, um, like if a kid all of a sudden is like, you know, you start talking about these, the sippins, you know, let's use that as, as an example. You start talking about that and some kid says, I hate gay people. Well then just say, all right, that sucks. I'm moving on. You know, like mm-hmm. we're done with this conversation, mm-hmm. but treat them like people and let them espouse their beliefs as long as they are not directly harmful beliefs, I guess. Um, and I successfully talked myself into forgetting what your second question was. So <laughs> per usual, do you have something to do you want me to rephrase? No, I was interested to see how you're going to rephrase the question. Same. Cause I actually not sure that I knew what you were asking. <laughs> <laughs> also, was like, so what I exactly? Like was like, at that point. not sure, <laughs> not sure what the question wrong. was. Um, and I think uh, we're putting Rudy in like the hot seat, um, and I and I just want to like you know make sure that we're having I think a a roundtable discussion. Um, I think because I I know that we're we're just like we we t- we reference it I think on the podcast a lot, and if if you listen, Rudy, I think you know, but like I am so like. Uh, I don't want to use that word, but okay. Thirsty for the perspective, thirsty for the perspective of a teacher. Like, you know, just like with the madness that's occurring in our, in our country right now. Um, like I don't, I do a lot of like diversity, equity and inclusion work at Notre Dame. Um, and originally one of like the sessions that I built way like, in, in 2021, kind of the height of the DE&I craze, right. Um, where this was, where all this effort was being put towards it. We were talking about the impact um um of racism or you know slavery and racism on on education um and now with these sweeping kind of anti-crt bills it's it's difficult because the way i was phrasing is that it felt like that we took this huge swing to the left where it felt like we were going to have all of these really you know productive conversations that would would hopefully change the trajectory of race relations in our country now swinging kind of all the way back to the other side to the right where it's kind of now now we're not even open to having the uncomfortable conversations we're trying to outlaw the conversations and the content in our classrooms um, that would allow us the pathway to kind of move past this um, part of our, our country's history or at least you know move forward from this part of our country's history um and and this can be more of an open conversation but like what impact do you think that that has long term on society not talking about these things and, and and i certainly have an opinion on that as well and i and i'm happy to share if you if you want to think about it for a second um and i and i'm curious like terrell and caleb what you guys think about that is because i think that erasing history not teaching 
you know, students about like what has happened. We are doomed to repeat it. And I know how cliche that is, but I truly believe that we are seeing the, that happen. 100%. I mean, I think, you know, when these questions start getting asked in this conversation, because you kind of have to, to step out and ask what the purpose of public schools are, is what the purpose of public schooling is in general. Like, why are we here? Um, and, you know, part of it is so that I can get paid. Um, but <laughs> like, there are, there are more reasons. And I, I think ultimately, um, and I have a point here, um, but I think ultimately like education is a social experience. You know, I really don't believe that you can do a quality education where you're not continuously dialoguing with people. Um, I think all education comes through dialogue and through conversation. And if we are creating a situation where there are certain conversations that can't be had, then there's obviously no way to move beyond that, beyond, beyond the, you know, the things that you had, um, that you had, you had referenced. Um, and I think in kind of maybe, uh, maybe more banal sense, but like, I think that it just results in a lonely, a lonely people. Um, you know, I just read a report about millennials being like the loneliest generation ever. Um, and when you take away young people's abilities and opportun opportunities, not abilities, when you take away young people's opportunities to start having discussions in safe places, then they have no idea how to have any discussions ever. And it just makes them very lonely, isolated people. Um, so I think that's a long-term impact of all of this um, that maybe we're not thinking about a lot. And obviously there are a lot of social and economic impacts to this too, but I think that's a one that we don't talk about much. I mean, if I can jump in too, I think we're seeing the ramifications of that, right? Um, we can't ignore that this is all based in the 1619 project that was lifting up and highlighting the fact that the way we speak about American history is glorified and does gloss over specific pieces in an effort to excuse shame in, in the simplest way. And because of that, and because of a lot of other external factors, 9-11 being a very key one, you have this group of individuals who have glorified this country to a place where any type of criticism comes off as anti-American, when in all actuality, it is probably the closest thing you would ever be to being an American by having that critical thought and being willing to have this discourse in the public space. So I would argue that we're, we're seeing the ramifications of not being educated appropriately in present day. The concern is, do we continue to head that route or can we correct course? Can we shift? Um, can we can we put ourselves in the shoes of a post-World War II Germany when they had the harsh choice to determine that their children, their children's children had to know how egregious the actions were of the Nazi party to understand what concentration camps were, to physically see them. Can we as a country move into that space where we own that we were not always perfect? We've never been perfect in my opinion. That's supposed to be the best story about America is it's always growing, it's always changing, it always has a, an option to be better than it once was. Those are the pieces that I'm worried we're starting to lose out on because we are, we are in this endless loop of, um, if you say anything counter to what the conservative party is trying to indoctrinate people on, you are 
by and large anti-American. Yeah, and I just want to add that like the there's a gap between what the American dream is and then what we're like it there's a gap between the American dream and what we're taught how to feel about it and what has actually happened in this country. There's a big gap in information asymmetry about that. And like for me, like I grew up in North Idaho, I went through the public schooling system and we never, we didn't technically have a civics class. The history that we learned about the U.S. was more like we learned about slavery and stuff, but like it was more about how it was founded and the government structure and why it's the best and stuff like that. And I was never really forced to kind of confront U.S. history like that until I got super involved and was in spaces where like I needed to understand that a lot more than I was ever taught in those public in the public education system. So when it comes to like schooling and stuff, like, I think you're right. I think it's very social. And I think you have to be able to have those conversations. But historically, America has been really bad at having those conversations. And I don't think there's a lot of factors that play into this. Something that came to mind when you were saying, if we never make that space, we'll see the impact of what happens. And like, I think actually a lot of like some of the nastiness on social media is part of that because on Twitter, you can't have a conversation without someone coming down your throat about something. It's like, it's like half the time I talk, I'm forming an opinion. I'm not, this isn't matter of fact, but a lot of the conversations, especially online to me, feel that way where you just, I feel like I can't have a conversation where I want to learn and form my opinion in real time. And I think there's that, that point is super valid. People on social media are assholes, but, um, <laughs> I think a lot of that too, it's really hard for me to remember like pre-pandemic time. Um, but I, I wonder if it's, I, I would be interested to kind of discuss whether or not that's different people's behavior online, especially regarding like heated issues. Mm-hmm. Um, because I noticed students have a much weaker, much not weaker. I don't like that word, have much less developed executive functioning skills. And so like emotional regulation is one of those skills. Um, and that's largely due to, you know, this, whole traumatic event happening in their youth. But I think all of our, our executive functioning skills have kind of decreased through the pandemic. So I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I just think that's an interesting <laughs> thing to think about, about whether or not, like how much all of these are, are tied to that event. I, I agree. And I think, I mean, it, it takes time for students and, and teenagers and whatnot to develop that mm-hmm. already. And I think the pandemic made it just worse. Exactly. And then those of us who have developed it allegedly, like allegedly. didn't practice it in the way that we should have for the last two years. So, you know, it's a skill. If you don't use it, you lose it. So I, um, so I've been like thinking about kind of like what kind of the history of, of the way that curriculum and, and public schools has been, has been crafted and has told a story about um, U.S. history, about this kind of American dream and forward progress at, at all, at all costs and like the liberation of people's rights, right? Like in a, in a constant progression um, without really talking about the, the really nasty and dirty and, and unforgivable parts of our history, um, as well as how that has, how that like the, our electorate you know kind of turns out and one of the things i think that we're, we're kind of seeing is that there's this really big swing back to the right with with banning certain topics in in public schools while not really acknowledging the ways in which there's been a very specific indoctrination about american exceptionalism in our schools up to this point that has resulted in some of this this like i believe like as you were guys you were you were referencing with germany like that 
this American exceptionalism stands in the way of us ever really facing our, our demons because it, it we are not allowed to be critical about America in that way without being looked at as unpatriotic and un-American. Um, whereas is like that kind of barrier is almost kind of makes the entire, you know, argument moot because you know in germany like they they take great pride in that in that that critical eye on their history and 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 the guilt and shame that they sit in for the decisions that that happened in their name and i think that that's something that we're not even willing to do we're not willing to sit in that for a moment enough to understand how we change course moving forward and the reason that this continuation of 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 banning you know certain topics in our curriculum concerns me is that i was just watching um some coverage about this very specific thing coming out of mississippi that i'm not sure if you guys are you know mile Wiley, she's a law professor at the New School in New York City. She's a former a candidate for New York City mayor. Um, she was she sat on a commission in Mississippi uh, for their curriculum and was talking about that just as recent as 2018 that their their that only eight percent of Mississippi graduates could, linked slavery as a as a large factor in the Civil War. Only eight percent. Which how are we supposed to have a really robust conversation about this country's history if only eight percent like share that opinion? Like that is a scary statistic about people's knowledge about the true history of our country. Um, and that that in that this the, you know this kind of bullshit that that. That Florida has about these math questions because she drew on a specific example in 2018 in a book in Mississippi that literally asked the question that about the premise of um, there were certain slaves like that enjoyed their work and enjoyed their life and what share of these this number of slaves um, would have been happy with their with their circumstances and which wouldn't have been. And like any assertion that right, like that an enslaved person would have found any joy in their life outside of the necessity to live, you know, is is heinous and disgusting to even discuss. But we're in our in our public school books, and now I don't know if you have seen any of the any of the examples that have come out of the the Florida Public uh, Department of Education um, that they've why they've pulled these books. Um, it's it's ridiculous and, and kind of overtly uh, speaks to the white white supremacist nature of this country and specifically Florida. I have, that made me think of two things, and one of them is just an anecdote, and then one is more of a segue, but, um, but I was picking music, speaking of horrible things found in our textbooks, I was in the li the district library picking through music, and I found this song, and usually when I pick music for students, um, for like songs, or to, to, to you know, sing, um, I kind of look at the musical stuff behind it um, first, so like, okay, we can teach, you know, 16th notes, 8th notes, whatever with this, found a song that I thought was great, um, you know, took it home, started kind of playing through it, looked through it and um, did not look at the text. Um, and like about a day before I started teaching it, I kind of was like, oh, I should probably read through the text. Um, and it was this whole song written in like the seventies um, about this person who's never outright mentioned in any capacity, but this person who has, you know, usually works with the sugarcane plants all day and, you know, has, they're, they're, their manager always makes them work, but you know, today they're going to have the day off and play with the rest of the monkeys was like the whole thing. It was a, and, and so obviously I did not teach it. Um, but just wild to think that still exists in district libraries. I don't know. That just blew my mind. So, um, yeah, that's insane. It was actually. very weird. Um, and sucked cause it was, it would have been a great teaching piece. Anyway, I'm very mad about it still. But I but, think that um, any of us in our generation could honestly reflect on things that we, we you know, especially in choir too, um, that we learned in, you know, school. And I can think of many things that I'm like, one, thank God that went over my head. But like, 
who the fuck was making those decisions, right? And it, like, and how ignorant were, was their lens? I mean, if you're right, we could, I could do a whole nother episode on just the racism in choral music education. Oh, I, I have, I have a few in my brain that I'm thinking about literally. Uh, well, and it's also just the idea that this whole subject is just basically white supremacy and emotional manipulation. Like we're all music exists West of the Rhine river. Apparently the only composers worth talking about were German or French. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that was, um, but my other thing, my segue. Don't mind his tangent, you know. I know, right? I had a segue. <laughs> I'm sure it was profound, but helpful. I but, seem to have forgotten it. But one thing oh, I just want to add. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say one thing I want to add. Like the 70s isn't Isn't that long shocking. Ago. It's not that long ago, but it's also not that shocking because, again, our history or our mental history seems short. But when we are having a whole conversation about removing Confederate statues, an important piece of that is most of those statues weren't erected until around the 60s and 70s as an overt attempt mm-hmm. to remind African-Americans in this country that this country isn't about them. So when you're when you're speaking about these education pieces and things being around and from the 50s to the 70s, I'm not surprised. That's so interesting what you just said. Like, you know, music is always there's an easy quote where he talks about how he identifies as a journalist, as a musician, because he's like reacting to the world around him and he's commenting on things through music. Anyway, really interesting that you would make that comment. You know, that song was being written at a time that those statues were going up. So like, you know, that song is probably the composer's reaction to those things in some capacity. And that's just, I don't know. You just kind of blew my mind there for a second. So, so that's gross. Um, but my segue, um, curriculum development, uh, and this ties to the Indiana bill um, that was passed about how all teachers have to have their lessons plan lesson plans in on June thirty first. Which, <laughs> um, but the um, <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. Like <laughs> that's literally well, well just and don't let me take you off track. But like, you know what's really interesting and insane about that? That any person who like it works honestly, like in 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 corporate America and higher education at all, like like I can't think of what what it takes to make one lesson plan. But the idea that I would be able to write one for all of the year a year in advance is asinine by any standard of work for any profession. Like it's just asinine. Yeah. No, and I would ask any other profession to tell me what they're doing next Tuesday. Let alone exactly. again, like, like none what? of us planned that out. I'm sorry, honey. Like I might die. So and to be held I'm... accountable to it, like like exactly. that's Correct. insane. Like like also, that's like, insane. You know, you don't come to my concerts. You don't come to parent teacher conferences. You don't respond to my goddamn emails. But you're gonna read through all of my lesson plans to make sure that I'm yeah. not teaching race. I'm like right. Tough go chance. Right yeah. ahead. Be my yeah. guest. Um. Anyway, my segue that I'm so proud of um, <laughs> towards curriculum. That so that Indiana bill. Um, those are all just going to be purchased curricula. Uh, McGraw-Hill um, has a line of curriculum in Des Moines. They used a, uh, a, a local company wrote something called the game plan. It was a sixth grade, like kindergarten through fifth grade uh, music education curriculum with daily lesson plans in it. And what this is going to end up being is just corporations like McGraw-Hill, like Texas Instruments, just writing curriculum and then selling it to school districts, and eventually we're going to have, you know, history sponsored by Coca-Cola and math sponsored by, you know, yeah, Ford. So it's I, it's going to be really, really bad, and that is what's that's what's already happening because they already sell those curricula. So you mean education sponsored by Elon Musk? Oh, don't get me started. 
Well, and what's like so dangerous about those things, and like one of the things that I, I and this was like three or four years ago before, like my niece just went to her, I think junior prom. So this had to have been four, like five or six years ago that she, my sister had posted on Facebook this picture of her history textbook, or let me be more correct, her social studies textbook, um, that that like depicted an illustration. And I recall the exact fucking thing when I was in in in, in elementary school, um, of this very like oh the the Indians invited the invited the pilgrims to, to to dinner and they they gave them and gifted them them this land and all of this stuff like like this just insanely <laughs> inaccurate and bold faced lie um it it's fucking frightening and, and it's those kinds of things that I feel like can make this feel like a fight that is unwinnable um and, and I try not to lose any faith like to lose like you know faith or hope but it can be incredibly. Uh, disappointing. I think the thing too regarding all of that is most people, well, I kind of have two beliefs on this, but people, you know, aren't the the teachers doing this for the most part, the teachers teaching this aren't necessarily, and this obviously isn't a blanket statement, but aren't necessarily just these like virulent racists who are like, I'm going to come into a six-year-old's classroom and like teach racism to them. You know, they're just they're people who went through that same system or taught that same system and then didn't get the opportunity um, through their education as a teacher to like critically think about that. And then all of a sudden they're 22 years old and you throw them in front of a classroom. And obviously like it's incumbent upon people to like unlearn their own bullshit at some point. But when the teacher education systems are not, are, are taking students from these education systems that are already teaching them racism and then reinforcing, you know, race and sexism and classism and all of this in teacher education programs and then putting out these people with you know who are 22 years old with no experience and really no guidelines and telling them to just be in charge of things well of course that's what's going to happen so i don't think it's necessarily like it is an individual fault on teachers but it's also like kind of like what you were saying earlier i guess holding individuals accountable even though there are systemic flaws um yeah it's the system yeah it is the system i mean it is the system but also like I don't know, like, you know, come on, Bradley, you're 30, like, stop being racist now, like, figure it out, you know? Right, right. I would just push back on that one piece, though, because it's like, yes, stop being racist, but we have to also own that it is an ecosystem, like, you can't unlearn racism when people are actively on your side being like, oh, yeah, you're fine. Right, and if you're living in, you know, waving grass Iowa and teaching, you know, in... A, a small town in Iowa and, and, and there's, you know, a bunch of white people around and the diversity is like a guy who went South for the winter. Like that's not going to be like, that's, that's not going to be an area that's conducive to, you know, that kind of conversation. So well, I think that we see, required to, yeah. we see how difficult but you know the nature of our conversation it is to change something that is so like uh, a, a systemic or institutionalized miseducation um of people you know and this was like the very interesting like example is that i just went you know to my visit to michigan state where i'll be going to law school in the fall and i sat in on a class and i you know obviously not been in the class before it was a bunch of two second year law students and we were assigned this they were assigned this reading i got the reading like that morning on my drive up and only got to read like part of this case um and so i was like you know very open about it when i got there i was like i only got to read part of it i just got this morning so like if i can't you know contribute to the conversation i apologize 
but it was a case that took place during Reconstruction. And and as someone who has very much been deep in DEI work, I am self-taught on Reconstruction and and then rather have run a ton about it over the past several years. And so I feel very knowledgeable about like kind of the things that happen that we don't talk about and aren't taught about in in class in class in public schools um, about Reconstruction and. I found that even for second year law school students who you, you kind of think of people who go to law school as people who would be obviously have have an interest in history and obviously the law and the trajectory of, of the law in our country. And like they had I would I knew more about reconstruction and the conversation in that classroom just sitting in than pretty much every other member member of the class. And it like clicked in my brain that like doesn't matter how studious you are, how smart you are, what the trajectory of your like personal like, you know, education is if it's not a part of any institutional, you know, norm to teach that subject matter, you are never going to learn it. And like, I, you know, like openly said that, you know, I was like, it doesn't shock me that, you know, that you guys think that you guys aren't, don't have more knowledge of this and didn't know some of these very like, you know, you know, kind of well-known facts about reconstruction because it does, no one's ever taught it to you and you wouldn't unless you seeked it out yourself. And I think that like, we don't understand the power of that, right? Like we tell people what's true. We tell them what to believe. We tell them what's fact. And like, if that's never if no one ever challenges that, then that's going to be this very deeply rooted belief that they have and they're going to believe it as fact and th- thus it's going to inform the decisions, the behavior that they have. And it's a difficult thing for us to try to, I think, you know, um, surmount. And I, I'm not sure that anyone knows the right answer, but I think that having these conversations is certainly uh, helpful. I, in education, the big thing right now is, you know, teaching facts kind of doesn't matter because after after that whole thing you just went on about facts um and yes of course like there are certain like truths that matter you know um but the big thing that we're focusing on is teaching students to learn and not teaching students anything necessarily in particular so you know when i teach music sure i'm teaching them a song but i really could give you know a rat's ass if they know that song in three years but the goal is that they've been able to like train their brain to learn something and then to unlearn and relearn. And those are kind of the big things that we are trying to, we as educators ought to be trying to teach our students is not, you know, I don't teach kind of, like I said earlier, I don't teach music. I teach kids and I don't teach kids music. I teach kids how to learn through the medium of music. Um, And so I think that's kind of just going back to the education system in general, like something that we need to, we need to be aware of, but Terrell, you were going to say something, sorry. No, I was just going to add to kind of circle back thinking about the implications of what this is going to have on education, right? Um, we're the generation of the I don't see color generation. We're the generation of the colorblind generation. And the direct implications of where we are are because of that. There was a time where um, our parents and elders, if you will, thought that by creating a colorblind generation, there would be this equity and sense of um racial conglomerates, I guess is the best word that comes to mind right now. Um, And where they failed was, Torrance, you might relate to this a lot as well, that philosophy and that way of teaching erased a part of who certain students were. And it became this conversation of, well, I don't see color. And it, it set a stage for an ignorance or an ignoring towards the history and the perspectives of that bring in. So I, I keep thinking about all of these pieces, right? Because we're having this really great and robust conversation and pointing out all of these spaces where education could potentially see 
benefits or, or move in a, a positive way. But we also have to own that we are not able to see the future. And we, we might have great implications here, as I would argue those who argued for a, a colorblind education. However, there is going to have to be more ramifications and more thinkings and more teachings as we go forward. I just about the colorblind education, like, I don't know who pushed that, um, like, you know, where that idea kind of sprung from, but I just would be really shocked if it was not a group of white people, frankly, like, I can't imagine that being <laughs> a, like, a, you know, a conversation that is held seriously in a room with just one black person, you know, like, I, I think that sounds like a decision. I think that sounds like a decision that's very easy to avoid by just including diverse voices um, in, in like the, the planning process. And so I think I would hope that as we move forward in education, we continue to include diverse voices. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's my hope against us, you know, kind of putting the cart before the horse with all of this. Well, I think, you know, obviously we've had, we, I asked for a robust conversation. I think that we certainly got a robust conversation. Um, I, I want to be, you know, transparent. I think that we didn't get enough to like kind of the statistical funding of education and, and the entire crisis that that subject matter is. Um, but I think consistent with a lot of the, the very mainstream conversations around education um, right now in the country regarding, you know, race and, and anti-LGBTQ plus and, and just kind of the impact that, that has on society and specifically with politics as well. Um, I think that, you know, that was an important part of this conversation that we needed to have. And I hope that we can come back to having a more robust conversation around funding, because I think that, um, it's one of the most shameful parts of our of our of our country. How little we pay um, teachers, how little we value teachers, how little we fund our edu our public education is truly something um, that grinds my gears um, in a way that I can I can barely really find the words to describe. So um, because I I think I, I say this all the time that, and, and I want to say this to you too, Rudy, that like I am someone who's deeply confident and, and feels like I'm competent enough to do almost anything that I would want that I would set my mind to in life and teaching is one of those things that god do I mean do I think I could actually get through it sure but like it's one of those things I do not have the same confidence in myself to do and it's a profession that I believe truly takes a specific kind of person um and so you know I thank you and I know that that's just maybe a silly thing to say but you know thank you for your commitment to, to young people and specifically as a choir teacher who I'm sure is creating a safe space for queer people um um as you know a former queer kid who who found safe spaces there. I want to, you know, thank you for that as well and, and being with us today. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to talk about funding ever again, I'm here to talk about the state of Wyoming, the best funding model in the country. So whenever you're ready for that one, I am too. All right. um, I think we will definitely be taking you up on that, correct, gentlemen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're you're coming back on the show. Soon. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having <laughs> me. Uh, we'll be right back with Dangerously Likely after this. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. So this week, um, my tangent is something I actually I want to give credit to CBS um, this morning. 
uh, they did a piece on the, you know, we've had this massive shift in legalization of marijuana across the country at the state level. Um, and they were, they were talking about how now that it's become kind of so, so widely accepted in, in a way that it hasn't been culturally and how it's become legal in, in so many states and decriminalized um, in, in pretty much all that now there's still this this stigma around you know people like so so one of the hosts went around new york city and was asking people oh do you smoke and how often right like and people were getting still very shy about sharing that despite it being completely legal as legal as the alcohol they go out and have drinks with their coworkers after work uh is um and how do we change this culture you know of 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 stigma around marijuana now that it's legal. And, you know, I just wanted to say that like, this is one of those things that like, whether you smoke marijuana or not, that like just logically is so silly because we obviously, you know, have, have legalized alcohol and, and alcohol is the, is the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States each year with an estimated 95,000 people dying from alcohol related deaths um, where the numbers for, for marijuana are nearly zero or, or, and, and, unmeasurable and immeasurable in most ways um because of the scientific uh, impact of marijuana is just not that dangerous for you in comparison to alcohol and so it just is so silly to me that we as a country are so culturally um like that drinking is such a, a huge part of our culture in the united states and and something that is um i guess adjacent to that but much less dangerous um has this thing the stigma around it and it just kind of grinds my gears you know like for example like you know i love my grandmother and, and you know she is a baby boomer and she drinks wine every single damn day and was always open to letting me have alcohol before i was 21 right but like still kind of has this like kind of shame um over over the idea of smoking marijuana and it's just like incredibly stupid to me because like she would encourage this thing that would be you know 100 percent more more dangerous for me uh and for my health uh for my you know i would put in more dangerous situations when i'm intoxicated off alcohol versus marijuana and and, and then she you know has all the shame about marijuana and it doesn't make any sense so i thought that i was wondering as you can see i'm having a tangent i'm just literally going on and on and but um but I just think it's really silly. And I think that we should, like in so many other things in our country, really take a much more clear lens on these things because it's incredibly stupid how we have stigmatized uh, marijuana, especially now that it is legal. Uh, take us on a tangent, Caleb. All right. Well, I hate to bring up this Elon Musk stuff again, but that's going to be my tangent. Mm, I guess I'm a little bit tired of some of the arguments about, I don't know, I just, most of my Twitter timeline is filled with people going like, oh, you could have put $44 billion to literally anything else. And like, yeah, but he didn't. At what point do we kind of move on a little bit? And like, I obviously there's systemic system or systemic things here that we should probably look at. And should a guy have a billion dollars? That's a, that's a different conversation. Um, but like acquisitions and mergers happen all the time. And I understand that there's, it's different when it's one man doing this. Um, but like a company, like, like for instance, um, Disney bought star Wars for several billion dollars and no one was against that. So I, I don't know. I don't know if this tangent is really justified. I'm just a little tired of all the, all the, my timeline, I guess. But wasn't that apples and oranges? You just said Disney bought Star Wars, as in a entire corporation bought Star Wars, not well, singular they could have put human the money being. World hunger. 
They certainly could have, you know, but they're they're too busy in a in a fist fight with Ron DeSantis, the bitch, right now. <laughs> don't conflate timelines; those are two different spaces. No, also, I don't think that's really a fair fight. I think Disney's gonna just <laughs> clean his ass. Well, I, I hope so. They might just wait. They just might wait it out. Either way, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get into a fight with Disney, but that's a different thing. Sorry. Well, I guess I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to sit here and say that's not a big deal that one man bought a $44 billion company. Like that is a big deal. I guess I'm just like, there's a lot of arguments of people not arguing about, at least in my timeline, it's not a lot of people saying, Oh, there's a system systemic injustice here. It's a lot of people saying he could have put his money anywhere else. And I'm like, that's not how our system's working guys. That's not the root cause of the problem. And I'm just kind of, yeah, no, a system that allows for it is the problem. Not him. Yeah. Or the transaction. Yeah. Can't blame the parasite. Right? Yeah, I mean, he's just thriving in its environment. Exactly. Don't get mad at ticks. Yeah. Uh, take us on a tangent. Rude. Oh my God. I don't even have a tangent right now. That's a lot. No, I, hang on. Let me. Someone pissed me off today. Um, tell us about Wyoming. Tell us about Wyoming. <gasps> okay, this is a good tangent. So Wyoming, okay. So every state in the country does their public education funding by property taxes, right? So your property taxes go to pay the school that's in your district. So like I live in the West Ada School District. So even though I live in Boise, like I pay for West Ada schools, which whatever, don't really care that much. But in Wyoming, all of the money gets sent up to a central state pot and then distributed amongst the schools based on need, which is so cool. Granted, there's like, one and a half counties in all of Wyoming, but like <laughs> it works there. We could make it work anywhere else. I just think it's a great model. So that's what I think we should do. Um, I could keep going with this, but I think that's, that's, that's my, that's my statement. Go Wyoming. Sorry. Sorry. I have to put in just like, cause God, I cannot allow this to pass without saying it. You mean it's equitable. Is that what I hear? Is that what I'm hearing? That there's an equitable funding model uh, that does not. From Wyoming. Not of all places. Right. Oh, God, literally, sometimes you just can't make sense of life. <laughs> I know, right? Wyoming also had the first woman judge in the country. So a lot of big things happening out in the cowboy state. Go Pokes. So that's what I got for you. I think I might move to Wyoming next. No, I don't. You're only going to progress. Anyway, Terrell, take some Um, I'll just keep mine short. I'm over all left-leaning individuals that's it oh my lord jesus <laughs> just follow him on twitter and you'll know that that's not really it's, like a good yeah, tangent it's so like, infuriating right now like all sides piss me off too so <laughs> like <laughs> our elon musk conversation i really wish more people were talking about the fact that we just watched him evade taxes and we made it a new story our people being mad at aoc like i just I'm tired of Pierre's politics. I'm just I'm over it. I'm really genuinely over it. Well, make more. that your tangent, no, the purest I'm, politics, yeah, so thing, because that is the point. Is a problem with like moderates? No, I think it's a problem with everyone. I, yeah, you don't I think you don't, you don't think purity. moderates do that? No, if moderates did it, we wouldn't have literally anyone. Moderates do it all. No one would have been born. Well, I don't think that. I don't think that purity (laughs) is. I think it's subjective when we're talking about it like this. Yeah, but like the party let Bernie be a part of it. Like 
Well, sure. If we're purists, he wouldn't have been allowed in. Like, AOC is another example. I don't think that moderates are the most pure. This is not a heated argument, Tom Dabio. Uh, this isn't a purist issue. It's more of the fact that there is, you mentioned this earlier, Torrance, and I don't remember exactly how you did it, but there is this aggressive run on the left to be more left than the other, and it's starting to turn into them becoming Republicans, and it's infuriating. I'm watching as individuals who claim to be far-left politicians are touting talking points that Republicans have, and highlighting or trying to advocate for, well, America is an imperialist state, so every other state is allowed to do as they please. Russia's not in the wrong any longer because America did it first. I'm watching... That's an argument. Which leftist saying. politician is saying that? I've seen that. Oh, I don't know which... I'm not saying that's a politician that, Yeah, that yeah was, I've gotten that, certainly. I've definitely seen that. I'm definitely frustrating. That wasn't yeah. to a politician, but I am seeing like this... Um, Elon Musk. Uh, that's an annoying one. God, why'd you bring that up? It just really made me sour as shit. I'm, I'm not seeing this like, Elon Musk so sour. I do think we could have a better conversation about our tax laws are fucking disastrous. And because we haven't been able to pass the Build Back Better plan or anything through reconciliation, we're still under the Trump tax cuts. But instead, we're at a... The talking point is eat the rich. And it's getting us nowhere. It's not making a progressive moment. No one understands that all of these pieces are happening. And then on top of that, you're seeing this, I don't even know how to word it. You're just, I don't know. I'm just tired of all of them. I'm going to disaffiliate from every college. Honestly, today was, I think, the first time that our tangents were like actually like just the definition of just like winding and just kept going just truly a stream of consciousness i'm disaffiliating from every party i'm moving to an island never looking back god see you know what (laughs) the question is not is he the drama is it why is he the drama um (laughs) well thank you so much that's been our show yeah Uh, thanks for yeah thanks for having me it was great yeah thanks for coming on thank you rudy for being here um yeah as torrance well put earlier that's our show as always, thank you for listening. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. I'm Jerome Couch. I'm Rudy Pimmel. <laughs> <laughs> and we're dangerously likely to see to you next see week. You next week.